Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The right to keep and bear arms is the one right that allows rights to exist at all. Now, either you believe that or you don't, and you must decide. Because there's no such thing as a free nation where police and military are allowed the force of arms, but individual citizens are not. I often say if we go back to what the founders thought about guns, it would be the worst nightmare for gun rights people and gun control people. Because you'd get rid of stand your ground, your duty would be to retreat, the government would inspect your firearm in your home, it would penalize you if you pick the gun you want instead of the gun the government wanted for you. On the other hand, it'd be more like living in Switzerland or Tel Aviv because we would all be part of a well-regulated militia and we would have to drop everything at a minute's notice and report to muster. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And at the top, you heard actor and former president of the NRA, Charlton Heston. There's going to be more of him later. And right after that, you heard Saul Cornell. He's professor of history at Fordham University, and he wrote the book, A Well-Regulated Militia. Uh, Saul teaches popular constitutionalism in the early republic. And we talked to Saul because today we're talking about the Second Amendment. What it meant when it was ratified, what it means as of this moment, and what happened in between. We're also going to talk about the amendment in the Supreme Court, uh, the NRA, and the truly unique relationship between our country and gun ownership. All right, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a bit of a labyrinth. So can we just start with the words? What does the Second Amendment say? So the Second Amendment, which is probably the most frequently invoked and poorly understood part of the first 10 amendments, reads a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay, Saul said frequently invoked and poorly understood. I mean, we have trouble whenever we try to understand the intent of the framers in their historical context. And regardless of their intent, that kind of doesn't matter because what matters is the people who interpret the Constitution, whose job it is to do so, the Supreme Court. Yes, absolutely. When the Supreme Court says what something means, it means that as far as the law is concerned. But back to the intent, the NRA website says, quote, the founding fathers felt that citizens should be able to protect themselves against the government and any other threat to their well-being or personal freedom. But, you know, you don't hear a lot of discourse about what the framers meant when they wrote the Seventh Amendment. Yeah, I mean, you don't see, like, ranting YouTube videos about people talking about why a civil case involving $20 or more should be heard in front of a jury. But back to the Second Amendment, why is it so tough to interpret? Modern Americans are quick to say, oh, how did they write such a bad amendment? I mean, how did they manage to screw it up so horribly? But 
In fact, if you're conversant with the way people talked and wrote about the law in the 18th century, it makes a lot of sense. It uses a very common Latinate construction called the ablative absolute. And the best way to render it in modern English would be to say, because a well-regulated militia is necessary to security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. An ablative absolute? Yeah, I don't want to go too deep into this, but I encourage everyone to look up an article called, quote, Our Latinate Constitution. It's all about how the framers emulated the style of Greek and Latin authors and philosophers. An ablative absolute is an adverbial modifier of the predicate that's not grammatically dependent on any word in the sentence, which I cannot wrap my head around, Hannah. But uh, an example from a Latin textbook is, having received the letter... Caesar sends a messenger. Since a well-regulated militia is necessary, the right shall not be infringed. Okay, so while we're doing historical context, two terms I want to understand are militia and bear arms. Absolutely. And I'd like to start with what a right to bear arms meant back then. Most of the first state constitutions did not have a provision on the right to bear arms, which is shocking given our obsession about it today. And perhaps most interesting of all, when they did include such provision, they often included a balancing provision which protected the right not to bear arms. Why would you need that right not to bear arms? What does that mean? Bearing arms in the 18th century was an obligation. And we're not used to thinking of rights as carrying obligations in modern American law. We generally think that if you have a right, it imposes an obligation on either the government or other people to respect that right. In 1792, you were obliged, as a white male between the ages of 18 and 45, to buy, keep, and maintain your own military weapon, ammunition, backpack, all that stuff. Uh, You had to submit it for inspection, and you had to always be ready to report to serve your country if needed. Okay, but why would someone need to have a right to not bear arms? Because of their religion. These are religious pacifists. And we're sort of touching on First Amendment territory here, but Saul gave me the example of the Quakers. Quakers, by the time that the Second Amendment was adopted, had won the ability in Pennsylvania not to bear arms, because the Pennsylvania Constitution is one of those states with a provision that says you cannot be forced to bear arms. But that wasn't good enough for them. They felt that any support for militia uh, activity or warlike behavior violated their peace testimony. I mean, they literally took the idea of turning the other cheek as you just turn the other cheek. You do not uh, you don't engage in warlike activity. You don't engage in any kind of violence, verbal or physical. Um, And These Quakers uh, refused to even pay taxes to support the militia. And if we're looking at it through the modern day lens of bearing arms as just having a weapon, the Quakers certainly did that. They, They were hunting with guns. They even manufactured guns. But at that time, that wasn't bearing arms. If you were playing a drum in an army, if you were carrying a stretcher, that is bearing arms. It's supporting war. It just shows you how different their world is and how most of the people who talk about the Second Amendment today are just essentially functionally illiterate in 18th century constitutional English 
And what they do is they project backwards our obsessions and our understanding. And of course, in modern America, you know, having a Glock in your bedside table so you can kill people is how most people think of what it means to bear arms. All right, let's move on to a well-regulated militia. How does a militia differ from, like, the U.S. Army? Okay, first a quick clarifier. When we're talking about militia in this episode, we are not talking about what law enforcement today call the American militia movement. That's modern-day paramilitary organizations. We're not talking about those. But this is interesting. The Continental Army, which fought the American Revolution, was disbanded almost immediately after the war. And then state militias took their place and became our only ground army. Nick, earlier you said that any white male between the ages of 18 and 45 could be called up to serve in a militia. So what's up with the white part? So basically, this is the definition of who is a citizen in Republican terms. Who gets to be a citizen in these two dimensions of citizenship? This is Alexandra Falindra. She's a professor of political science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's also the author of the upcoming book, Race, Rights, and Rifles. And Alexandra talked to me about republicanism. This is not related to the modern-day Republican Party. Republicanism is the political ideology in early America that was the basis for our revolution and our foundational documents. And that ideology continues in the history that America is writing for itself today. Americans had to explain to themselves and to the world why it was that there were this race and gender-based restrictions, right, to who gets to be a citizen. So you need a theory because republicanism basically says that in order to be a good citizen, you have to be willing to die for the country. You have to be willing to use violence and bear arms for the purpose of the Republic. So in the American context, the myth that was created was that white colonists proved themselves to be virtuous and therefore deserving of Republican citizenship because they fought to death at the revolution. The Boston Tea Party, Shays Rebellion, the revolution itself, the Confederacy in the U.S. Civil War, These are violent, anti-government uprisings, and they have been spoken of with words like patriot, freedom fighters. Uh, One book was written that said the South had a, quote, honorable defeat. And we see that over and over in American history when African-Americans use violence and armed violence. It is described in the language of criminality, whereas... The guys who went to the insurrection on January 6th, it was described in the language of liberty, freedom, don't tread on me, these high moral and political principles. And these don't apply to African-Americans in this white male supremacist world. And this is how guns became symbolic and very potently symbolic of white good citizenship. Okay, so Alexandra is saying that it is uncommon to see instances of black Americans displaying arms. I'm thinking of the Black Panthers, for example, Mm -hmm. right? Or using violence. And then here it described as an act of patriotism. 
Right. And to support her point, you can just read modern day responses or the lack thereof from the NRA and NRA supported politicians regarding instances where police have killed legally armed black Americans. Okay. So getting back to the militia, that's not how we do things anymore, Nick. So what changed the system? Well, frankly, the system changed due to its effectiveness. Or should I say ineffectiveness? In reality, the militia was useless as a military organization. They were horrible because the states didn't have the money or the interest to train them. And because they were citizen soldiers, they could vote out any politician who insisted on rigorous training. Like they like the trappings of military service because this is service in quotes. They like the uniforms and they like the weapons and they run around doing drills with fancy weapons of the time and fancy uniforms, you know. But when it came to real training, they didn't want to do it. There were enormous problems with militia members deserting in the War of 1812. But the biggest demonstration of the failings in the system was the Civil War. In the Civil War, the militia showed how badly trained they were. They were constantly brawling, and they weren't working with each other from different states because they didn't have any contact, they had no organizational training, and they were dropped. And a group of officers from the New York State Militia who saw how terribly the militia had performed in the Civil War devoted themselves to the task of training them. Specifically, training them how to shoot better. Uh, Records from the Union estimated that its troops fired about 1,000 rifle shots for each Confederate soldier hit. So they weren't just ineffective. They were also, I would assume, costing a lot of money. Yeah. So this new group of officers sent emissaries to other countries that had militias, uh, Germany, the UK, Canada, to see how they trained their soldiers to shoot better. And in 1871, this group was chartered in New York State as an association for the purpose of teaching marksmanship. Is this going where I think it's going? Yeah. An association that would teach people nationally how to properly use their rifles? You got it. This is the birth of the NRA. In the early 1900s, when a very, very famous National Guardsman was president, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, they were able to get out of Teddy Roosevelt a new law which provided a subsidy and a monopoly to the NRA for the purpose of training civilians in marksmanship. The federal government committed the provision of surplus weapons and ammunition for free or at cost, exclusively to NRA and its members for the purpose of military preparedness to morally and in terms of technical skills, create soldiers out of civilians for the purposes of the draft. The NRA didn't become powerful. It was powerful because the NRA was basically the same thing as the National Guards. What does she mean that the NRA was the same thing as the National Guard? Well, in 1903, the state militias were all renamed the National Guard, and they were exclusively trained by the NRA. The heads of the National Guard were the heads of the NRA. Uh, Alexander told me a story about a congressional hearings in the 1930s where uh, a guy testified in front of the House as the president of the NRA. And then two days later... 
The same guy testified in the Senate as the adjutant general of the National Guard. Is that not kind of a conflict of interest? I mean, it is, but honestly, nobody really cared much at the time because everyone was all in on this program of training civilians to protect the government. Did the program work? No. Because the idea was, okay, we will get them young, we'll teach them how to use a gun, and then they will be so excited and morally uh, uplifted by this that they'll want to be in the army. This didn't happen. This was hugely wasted money. And even though report after report uh, showed that this was wasted money, the program exists today. It stopped being a monopoly of the NRA in 1968, but for an entire century, basically, the NRA had a monopoly over this program that basically gave free guns and ammunition to citizens just for being members of the NRA and members of gun clubs. What happened in 1968 that ended the NRA's monopoly? A lot. A lot happened in the 1960s. And here's where we start to talk about how the Second Amendment legally affects us. And that's coming up right after the break here on Civics 101. But first, a reminder that our show is public media. And you are the public. Support it with a donation in any amount at our website, civics101podcast.org, or click the link in the show notes to make a donation right now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead. With Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy, the way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. All right, we're back. We're talking about the Second Amendment. Now, Nick, we've gotten into the history of the amendment, but now I'd really like to hear about the laws. You mentioned 1968. Is that the year of the first federal gun legislation? Well, I'd love to go a little bit earlier than that. 
Here is Saul Cornell, professor of history at Fordham University and former director of the Second Amendment Research Center. You can go back to the 14th century and the statue of Northampton. Hundreds of years before guns even exist. And you have a law in Britain saying you cannot go armed, in this case it wouldn't be firearms, before the king's ministers or in fairs or markets. Because there is this notion that carrying arms in heavily populous areas is just not a good idea. Although in most parts of the world, the idea that modern American gun regulation would depend on a statute passed in the 14th century where there were no guns makes most people in the rest of the English-speaking world both laugh and kind of shake their head like, what is going on with you people? Um, and what is this theory of originalism where you actually care more about what was going on in 1328 than the massacres you see now with almost uh, uh, appalling frequency? Is Saul implying that much of the world would be baffled by our devotion to adhering to these laws written so long ago? I think he is. But we do focus on the intent of our framers, specifically when it comes to the Second Amendment. So I'm going to get into it. During the American Revolution, authorities would forcibly disarm you if you didn't swear a loyalty oath to protect your government. You could hunt. You could keep a gun in your house, though in Boston in 1786, you couldn't keep a loaded one there. Uh, And if it was a military-issued gun, it had to be registered and regularly checked by your militia. But you were forbidden from having what we now call open carry, guns just out and about when traveling or being in public places. And later on, these rules also extended to places where, due to Hollywood, we tend not to think of as heavily restricted Gun-wise. Here's Alexander Falindra again. Even then, you know, you were carrying your arms, but if you went to uh, the OK Corral, the town required you in Arizona, and Tombstone, Arizona, required you to leave your guns at the entry of the town before entering the town. So no, no guns were allowed into the town. Very, very regulated guns-wise West. The idea we have always carried guns everywhere all the time is just another gun rights fantasy masquerading as history. That's carrying guns in public, though. What about carrying a gun in secret? Oh, legislators passed way more laws preventing that, more than open carry. Traditionally, in the 19th century, people were far more concerned about concealed carry than public carry. It's only the criminals who have guns that can be hidden because you know, they're going to attack you when you don't expect it. All of this legislation, being it permitting open carry in certain circumstances or banning it in others, never comes to the federal level, as far as the Supreme Court is involved, until the 1930s. U.S. v. Miller, 1939. Jack Miller violated the National Firearms Act of 1934 and carried a sawed-off shotgun across state lines. And that was illegal at the time? It was. In 1934, we were just coming off an enormous amount of armed violence in the era of prohibition and gang activity, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The National Firearms Act, the NFA, put an exorbitant tax on weapons used during that era. So I'm talking about the Thompson uh, or the Tommy gun, sawed-off shotguns, silencers on pistols, uh, explosives like grenades and bombs. 
Now, the act initially included handguns as well. And interestingly, the NRA supported the National Firearms Act. They helped shape its wording. They agreed there's no place for Tommy guns and grenades in America, but they disagreed with the handgun restriction. So that was stripped out. But back to Jack Miller. Uh, Miller was caught with a sawed-off shotgun, and he argued the NFA violated his Second Amendment rights. So the Second Amendment finally got its day in court. Yeah, kinda. And it comes and goes pretty fast. What was the decision? It was unanimous. Miller lost. All of the Supreme Court justices agreed the NFA is not unconstitutional, because the Second Amendment has nothing to do with gun ownership outside the context of a well-regulated militia. Justice McReynolds wrote the opinion where he said, unless having a sawed-off shotgun, quote, has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument. Okay, see, that opinion seems to have very little to do with what I consider sort of prevailing interpretations of the Second Amendment. How long until we see a case where it's discussed with more detail and debate? About 70 years. And before we talk about the more recent Supreme Court interpretation of the Second Amendment, a lot of stuff happens in the U.S. After several attempted assassinations against presidents and after the successful assassination of Kennedy and after the successful assassination of Bob Kennedy and the successful assassination of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, you name it. But another problem was that Klan members and the Minutemen and other extremist organizations in the 60s became members of the NRA and and got access to federal guns and ammunition to fight against the civil rights movement and also against the federal government. And that kind of became a problem. And the NRA was investigated. What was the result of the investigation? I don't know, uh, because it's not public. Alexandra only had a summary of the investigation, and she's been trying to get her hands on the full report for a long time. She hasn't been able to. But shortly thereafter, Lyndon Johnson ended the NRA's monopoly on training the National Guard, and he signed the 1968 Gun Control Act. Today we begin to disarm the criminals and the careless, and the insane, and all of our people who are deeply concerned in this country about law and order should hail this day. Now that act banned mail order sales of shotguns and rifles, and it prohibited felons and drug users and people found mentally incompetent from purchasing any guns. And this is where the NRA made a big pivot. So in the mid-1970s, um, there was what's called the Revolt at Cincinnati um, with the National Rifle Association. This is Jake Charles. He's the executive director at the Center for Firearms Law at Duke University School of Law. And what that refers to is a moment in time where hardliners in the NRA who thought the NRA was being kind of too cozy with those who were in favor of regulations, uh, what at the time were kind of some, some fairly mild regulations, the hard, hardliners thought the NRA was not taking um, uh, enough of a stance for the Second Amendment. And so uh, they took over the organization, and the organization after that point became the organization that we know it today, which is an organization that is opposed to most forms of uh, gun regulation. The Revolt of Cincinnati 
was in 1977, and I don't think I can overstate its importance. So again, in the late 1960s, the NRA was not politically powerful. It was fairly flexible about gun regulation. But at their convention in 1977, the hardliners who opposed any gun legislation whatsoever outnumbered those who were open to regulation. New leaders indeed took over, and there was an adoption of a do-not-give-one-inch mentality towards firearm legislation. And very quickly, the NRA's focus shifted. It was no longer just about hunting or marksmanship, but something else entirely. It was about opposition to gun legislation, and it was about mobilizing voters. And this is where the NRA organizes its million-plus members. This is headquarters in Washington. Plush, computerized, heavily staffed, well-funded, and geared for action. Friend and foe agree the NRA's power to scare congressmen lies in its ability to mobilize its members in any congressional district at the touch of a computer button. What we see then is the NRA in 1980 is endorsing Ronald Reagan. It's the first time the NRA endorsed a presidential candidate. Um, Ronald Reagan uh, returned the favor once he was in office and he became a very pro-gun president. Um, and so the 80s, we see the uh, Congress enacts the Firearm Owners Protection Act, which provides a lot of um, rolls back some of the federal regulations there have been on guns and protects uh, gun rights a lot. Keep fast forwarding, the gun rights movement becomes uh, kind of more powerful. The NRA becomes more powerful. We start to see these uh, challenges to what had been the prevailing interpretation of the Second Amendment for at least 100 years, which was that it was tied to the militia. And this is when we started to hear things like this. So it's not unreasonable that with one lost generation, we could lose the Second Amendment forever because we didn't teach them what the battle's all about. We didn't strike that spark in their hearts that lights the fire for freedom. That, again, was Charlton Heston, five-term president of the NRA, in an NRA-produced short film called A Torch with No Flame. Are you saying that until the 1980s, the Second Amendment was not really talked about as pertaining to an individual's right to own a gun? That is what I'm saying. It was not. I watched an episode of 60 Minutes from 1977 on the inner workings and beliefs of the NRA, and the Second Amendment wasn't mentioned even once. And I was quite shocked to learn about this, Hannah, and I was so shocked that I asked Jake that exact question. Was this interpretation new? Uh, yes, I think, that's, I think that's a fair way to put it. At the NRA's kind of energizing moment in the 70s and with Reagan's presidency in the 80s was first, or, or not first, but at least alongside advocates, we saw uh, legal scholars publishing and we saw um, gun rights activists publishing in law reviews and in legal journals arguments the Second Amendment had been misinterpreted um, for the past hundred years by the federal courts. And that actually does protect an individual right. Um, they claimed to discover a lost history that hadn't been there before and that everyone had overlooked when they were interpreting the Second Amendment and that it actually protects an individual right unconnected to any service in a militia. So it certainly um, ha has not been the prevailing view throughout American history. There is really strenuous debate about how much of it is recovering what had been an old view that was lost and how much of it is creating a new view that responds to current concerns. So basically the NRA is not just 
lobbying members of Congress. They're contributing a new philosophy to the academic and legal discourse. They are. But as Jake said, there is to this day debate about whether this philosophy is completely new or it existed hundreds of years ago and we're just bringing it up again. And to add to this thought, former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Warren Burger, in an interview with PBS in 1991, said that the gun lobby's modern-day interpretation of the Second Amendment was, quote, one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat the word fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime, end quote. And all this brings us to the next Supreme Court decision invoking the Second Amendment, District of Columbia v. Heller. We will hear argument today in case 07290, District of Columbia v. Heller. Mr. Dellinger. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Second Amendment was a direct response to concern over Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, which gave the new name And by 2008, there had been a few federal laws regarding guns and lots of state and municipal restrictions. The big ones that I should mention here are the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, often called just the Brady Bill from 1993. Uh, That requires instant background checks to be performed when anybody buys a gun. Now, there are loopholes to this, by the way. A study in 2017 found that 22% of gun purchases happen without a background check. And when we're looking at state and municipal gun laws, the relevant one in this case is one from 1975. It's a law that forbid residents of Washington, D.C. from keeping handguns in their homes. Dick Anthony Heller was one of six parties in this case. He was a police officer who used a gun at work, but he said he wasn't allowed to have one in his home. The case was argued in March of 2008, and the court issued its opinion three months later. Our opinion is very lengthy, examining in detail the text and history of the Second Amendment. How did they rule? For Heller, for the view that the Second Amendment protects your right to own a gun in your home. And in Heller, the Supreme Court endorses that view by a vote of five to four. So it's the five uh, more conservative justices on the side of the Second Amendment protects its individual right. And the four more liberal justices who uh, look at the same history, uh, the same sources that the majority looks looks at and says, actually, it's tied to a militia. It's not an individual right unconnected to what that prefatory clause says it's connected to. Right. And what the court said in Heller, at least the five justices in the majority, what they said was, was the militia was the reason for the codification of the Second Amendment. This is the reason they drafted it and put it in the Constitution. But their reasons for putting it in there don't restrict what the scope of the right was. And so what they said the scope of the right is, is this second clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And what Justice Scalia said, writing for uh, the majority, was that self-defense is at that core of the right of the people to keep and bear arms. It might not have been the reason that they put it in there, the reason they um, ratified the Second Amendment, but that was the core of the right that they were protecting. And now, because the Supreme Court is the interpreter of the words in our Constitution, the Second Amendment is about our right to own a gun, regardless of our involvement with the militia. All right, the Heller decision allows handgun ownership federally. But as we see with so many Supreme Court decisions, you know, it often takes some time for that decision to apply to all the states. 
And this matters a lot because state laws are the ones that actually affect our lives. Right. And the Heller decision took two years to apply to all the states, which it did in another five to four ruling. Almost the same justices, except in the minority, you got Justice Sotomayor instead of the now retired Justice Souter. And this is a case called McDonald v. City of Chicago. Chicago being another city where handgun ownership was restricted. And this opinion was written by Justice Alito. And in the McDonald decision, which was the case that applied Heller to the states and to localities, incorporated the Second Amendment, to use a phrase uh, familiar to those of you who study the Constitution out there. Um, so Justice Alito says, well, clearly, you know, they, they decided to rewrite these provisions and take away the focus on the militia. So therefore, it's an individual right, which fair enough. But he stops reading right in the middle of the sentence, because the very next line in all these state constitutions is and the legislature shall have the right to regulate arms in public. For example, in his opinion, Justice Alito references the Texas Constitution of 1869, which does say, quote, every person shall have the right to keep and bear arms in the lawful defense of himself or the state. But there is no mention of the second half of the sentence, which says, quote, under such regulations as the legislature may prescribe. So literally, you have the originalists being textualists to the point in the text where it contradicts what they want to do. What tends to happen in American constitutional law all too often is we invoke history, but the history that we use to construct our law is a kind of bizarre combination of mythology, ignorance, and um, anachronism, which is a fairly potent cocktail if you're mixing one up. You know, one part ignorance, one part anachronism, um, and one part myth. I mean, it's, it's a heady brew, but it's, um, it's not really what historians understand the past to be. I mean, the, the basic principle we start with as historians is, if you're not a little confused by how differently they approach something, you're probably not understanding what they meant. Now, this is an episode about the Second Amendment and its history and its interpretation in the courts and the public discourse. But it is also about America's relationship to guns. Now, when the Constitution was written, our framers were wary of parties, right? They were wary of factions, even though they happened almost immediately. And over the years... Gun regulation has indeed become a partisan topic. It has a very partisan topic, uh, and it's grown more partisan over the last 30 years. Uh, a quick example, in 1992, the NRA donated to the campaigns of candidates for the House in a 60-40 split, 60% to Republicans, 40% to Democrats. But in 2016, Republican candidates received 98.4% of such donations. Nick, what's next? If we are so deeply divided on this, what can we expect in the next 50 years? Well, since Jake Charles teaches a class at Duke just on the Second Amendment, I asked him what his students say. Do any of them change their mind? So I think most of my students come into uh, to class thinking that um, gun regulations are totally fine and that the Heller decision is bogus. Um I think by the end of class, they're both conflicted about both of those um, from the kind of that side of the aisle in that uh, 
you know, there, there is an ambiguous history there, right? There are things you can point to in the founding era, um, these concerns about tyranny, these protections um, for, uh, you know, individual to defend themselves. And this, so there's lots of, there's maybe more evidence than they had thought there would be when they just look at the Second Amendment. They're more conflicted about these regulations over particular people possessing firearms. They, you know, most of them, I think, get to that point in the class and they say, well, if we're going to have this right, it's got to be available to everybody. It doesn't make sense to limit it to these classes. That's just, uh, you know, that's just racist or classist. Um, on the other side, I think, um, what a lot of my students who are against regulation and are strong Second Amendment supporters come away a little more conflicted about is that the fact we're, we're not talking about are you for the Second Amendment or are you for gun regulation? It, it, it's always throughout American history been been both. Right? There has been a strong gun culture. There has been a strong regulation culture. Um, and so it's not just this monolith of of are you for gun regulation? It's this particular pro proposal. Like, are you for this particular proposal? And a lot of them say, well, yeah, not everyone should have guns. Now, we're recording this episode three weeks after the mass shooting in Buffalo, two weeks after the school mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and one week after the Warren Clinic shooting in Tulsa. So from a constitutional Second Amendment viewpoint, Nick, are things going to change? Did your guests talk about how we can consider gun rights in the light of America being the mass shooting capital of the world? Yeah, they did. Alexandra Falindra said she didn't think anything would change anytime soon, as gun control is such a volatile topic that nobody, specifically no Republican, running for Congress would dare talk about restricting access to guns because they'd be primaried out. But I have to add, as of just a handful of days before this recording, there has been an announcement of a bipartisan deal on gun legislation. It's the first of its kind in over 30 years. We begin tonight with the news of a tentative bipartisan Senate agreement on what would be the biggest new federal gun legislation in decades. The package is narrow and short of what President Biden and many Democrats wanted. And to be clear, yes, as of June 14th, no bill has been proposed, no legislation drafted, uh, but 10 senators from both parties have worked on it. Now, Jake said there are certain regulations that his students on both sides of the debate agree upon, specifically red flag laws. Uh, those are laws that allow the police, family members or co-workers to petition the state court to disarm someone they believe is a danger to themselves or others. And finally, Saul said we're not going to get anywhere if we don't talk about it. Um, so any reasonable approach to the problem of gun violence in America, because it is a uniquely American problem, at least in the industrial democracies of the world, has to both recognize that gun ownership, private gun ownership, is a deeply rooted tradition and value in American life, but so is gun regulation. So the logical and reasonable argument we should be having is, are there any things we could be doing that would reduce the toll and horror of gun violence that doesn't impose an unreasonable cost on those people who want to have guns? And is it possible to formulate policies that make it more difficult for people we don't want to have guns to have them that, again, only minimally uh, burden those who want to have guns? That would be a calm, thoughtful, productive discussion, which we never have had as a country in my lifetime. 
and which would be nice to have. This episode was written and produced by me, Nick Capodice, with Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton, Christina Phillips is our senior producer, and Rebecca Lavoie, our executive producer. Music in this episode by Francis Wells, Peter Sandberg, Auto Hacker, Apollo, Sight of Wonders, Dama Beats, Peerless, Golden Age Radio, Major Tweaks, Fabian Tell, Pictures of a Floating World, I love using that song, Cooper Cannell, Blue Dot Sessions, those tried and true war horses, and the man, the myth, the legend... Chris Zabriskie. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. All right. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.